0: I want to invite you to open up to the book of Exodus as we return to the story of Exodus. We're going to be in chapter 7 this morning, starting at verse 14. Now, it's been a while, but if you remember, we left with a bit of a cliffhanger as the Lord was on the verge of having a final showdown with Pharaoh. Speaking through Moses and Aaron, the Lord purposed to rescue his people after hundreds of years of bondage in Egypt. And God chose Moses an 80-year-old shepherd who had lived the first half of his life as Egyptian royalty and the second half as a fugitive wandering around in the desert. Moses needed convincing, you'll recall, to serve as the Lord's mouthpiece to Egypt. So God gave Moses a partner, his brother, Aaron. And together they went before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and delivered the Lord's message, Let my people go. Pharaoh, alas did not respond well. His actual words were, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And so Pharaoh ignored God's command. Not only this, if you remember, he made the conditions even more difficult for the Israelites. And so it didn't take long for the slaves to join their slave master in questioning the legitimacy of Moses' leadership. Moses, too, began to question himself He tried to back out of his role, but the Lord would not let him go. And so Moses and Aaron visited Pharaoh a second time. They came this time with more than words, as this time God turned the staff of Aaron into a snake right before Pharaoh's eyes. But Pharaoh's magicians proved that they could do the same thing with their staffs, as they became snakes too. This second encounter, though, which is where we ended, ended with a preview of what was to come, as Aaron's snake opens up its mouth, and devours all the other snakes. In that moment, it soon becomes clear that for God, this second encounter was simply a foretaste, a shot, if you will, across the bow. The real magic, the true power of the Lord, is yet to be seen. From Exodus chapter 7, starting with verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding, He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed to blood. The fish in the Nile will die and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs until they turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and stone jars. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace, and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water, because they could not drink the water of the river. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here begins... The ten plagues of Egypt, a battle of wills between God and Pharaoh, the systematic fall of an empire that gives rise to the birth of a nation. Here begins three cycles of three plagues each, a progressive divine intervention in human history, a series of revelations by God that move from annoyance to inconvenience to devastation to darkness to death when a tenth and final plague settles the matter once and for all. It all begins with a warning that is repeated with each cycle. The Lord tells Moses to go to Pharaoh in the morning with the warning of what was going to happen. Nothing that follows is unexpected. Everything that will be unleashed is foretold in advance. And all that comes next, all ten plagues is underscored by a single reason for why this happens. But until now, you have not listened. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. Beloved, it's time for a little true or false test. God is about to shatter the box that Pharaoh, drunk with power, would put around him. One by one, the Lord will dethrone the rival gods that the Egyptians dare to place alongside him, including their own leader who suffers from delusions of divinity. The God of, Israelites, of the Israelites is about to reveal in no uncertain terms that he is the one and only, that he alone is the Lord and there is no other. The starting point, the first plague is on the bank of the Nile River. The same river perhaps you remember, where Moses had been hidden so that he would not be murdered. It is the same river where another pharaoh's daughter found Moses and brought him up in the palace to live as a prince. Serendipity is a funny thing. Forty years later, this river that once saved Moses' life is now going to run with blood. In front of Pharaoh and all of his servants, Aaron lifts the staff and hits the water with it. Before their very eyes, the water turns into blood. In an instant, the Nile River becomes unusable. The Nile River, the heart of Egyptian life, the epicenter of her power and pride, becomes tainted. Part of what made the Egyptians an empire was the Nile River. After all, Egypt didn't have to rely on rain like the other nations. Water for their crops, for their bathing, for their cooking, their cleaning, their laundry and drinking. It didn't come from rain like it did in Canaan. Rain was a secondary source in Egypt, a backup, but not the primary supply. With the Nile in their backyard, people in Egypt never had to ask themselves, will we have enough water? They never had to ask until now. And in case there's any question, this isn't some natural phenomenon that was happening in the Nile at the time. Because we're told that even in the wood and stone containers where they stored the water gathered from the Nile, the water turned to blood as well. Try all you want. This isn't something you can just ignore. The color and stench of blood is everywhere. That dryness in your throat won't go away. That dryness in the land lasts for seven long days without relief. All of what is about to come with ten plagues starts here. It starts at the Nile River, and it is not coincidental. It is deliberate. It is intentional. It is designed both as a public revelation, but I also believe it is intended as a personal message for Pharaoh. Interestingly, the Bible tells us of a particular pharaoh later in history who saw himself to be the source, the creator of the Nile River. If you want to read about that, go to Ezekiel chapter 29 later today. A later pharaoh would actually come out and say that he was so much of a god that he was the creator, the source of the Nile River. Beloved, if that happens later, why couldn't it happen now? We've already witnessed the arrogance of this pharaoh in the book of Exodus. It's clear he thinks that he can do what he likes, when he likes, with whom he likes. He perceives himself to be a god. How out of place would it be for us to consider for him to claim that he too was the creator, the source of the Nile? Now what can he say? What can he say? In response to this first volley, the Egyptian magicians just as with the snakes before, are able to duplicate this plague by their sorcery. And so it appeared to Pharaoh that his servants had just as much power as the servants of God. And because of this, Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, just as the Lord had said. Through Moses and Aaron, God had made it clear what would happen and why, but Pharaoh refused to take it to heart. He refused to accept what was happening, We're told that he went back to his palace and turned his back not only on the Lord, but also on his own people. We're told that the Egyptians dug along the Nile trying to find clean water to drink. Think about this for a second, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about this. Pharaoh turns his back on Moses, Aaron, and his own people because he is convinced that his power is as great as the Lord's. But if this was true... If his magicians truly had any power, couldn't they have reversed the plague rather than made it worse? Really, how impressive is it to produce more blood? What difference, in fact, does that make? There is a sick and twisted humor to be found here, as well as an important lesson. One way that you and I in our own lives can tell the difference between a false god and the real one is the power of the false gods of this life can only go so far. They can imitate or mimic the kind of power that we really need in our lives, but they cannot deliver anything that lasts. This lesson is only reinforced seven days later as the waters of the Nile clean up and the frogs begin to come forth and cloud everything. Aaron stretches out his staff, and out come all the frogs. Now, perhaps you've had a child bring a frog into the house, and it got loose. No big deal, right? Maybe you've had, at some point in your travels, a frog jump unexpectedly on you. Surprising and slimy, but you can get over it, right? What do you do when the frogs are everywhere? What do you do when the frogs are swarming? Frogs come into your homes, frogs in your cooking utensils for food, into your bedrooms and on your beds. There are so many frogs in Egypt, in fact, that we're told that the frogs were jumping on the people themselves. Once again, instead of reversing God's power so that the frogs would disappear, the magicians show their power by bringing even more frogs. Really? Really? Does this make any sense at all? Do we really need more frogs? Rival gods, just like the Egyptian magicians, beloved, sell themselves on the promise that they are just as powerful as anything else, that their truth is just as good as anyone else's. But once again, we see through this encounter that while false gods may have power, their power is only the ability to add to the chaos. They cannot overcome it. This point is underscored in the story, if we were to continue reading, even after the frogs finally start coming. Just in case anyone in Egypt would miss the message, the Lord leaves the frogs in Egypt. The story tells us that when the frogs up and die, they don't just instantly disappear. Their carcasses are littered throughout Egypt. Egypt. The impotence of the Egyptian magicians, of Pharaoh's power, is realized in a sensory way through the stench of dead frogs that fills the land. We are told that the land stunk with the smell. Beloved false gods can hint, can weave hints of truth in the packaging of lies, but they cannot provide the whole story, the whole truth. Pharaoh's own magicians Confess this themselves as the third plague is unleashed on Egypt. Now, speaking of that third plague, have you checked recently to see all of the dust that is in your home? Dust that you cannot even see unless the sunlight exposes it. Can you imagine all of that dust in one moment suddenly coming to life as a pestilence? Nat is a word that describes a biting, stinging insect that penetrates the nostrils and ears of its victims. Perhaps you've been somewhere, maybe in the woods, and have had a swarm of mosquitoes all around you, drinking your blood dry and making you very uncomfortable. Or maybe you've been at a place where those pesky little biting flies abide, and it seems like you're spending all of your time fighting them off. Still, even if you've had that experience, that is nothing compared to the picture we are given in Egypt with the third plague. More than this, we know from history that the Egyptians were a people obsessed with cleanliness. The Egyptian priests alone washed and shaved their bodies repeatedly in order to be found acceptable by their gods. Imagine having no ability to get clean you can't escape out of your house and be safe because the gnats are waiting outside as well. Everywhere you go, every breath you take, if you dare breathe, you are battling these tiny, biting insects on man and animal all throughout the land. The priests and the magicians of Egypt can't get clean. They can't get right with their gods They who were once able to duplicate the snakes from staffs, to replicate water turning into blood, to multiply frogs, find themselves at the limit of their power. Lies will always be exhausted by the truth. Real power is always able to overtake the imposters. And the magicians come before Pharaoh and say, this is the finger of God. There comes a time when even the enemies of God See that something is going on that they simply cannot explain outside of a power, outside of themselves, even if that was God. These Egyptian magicians recognized that God, the God of Israel, that is, the one they did not believe in, was bringing these things upon Egypt and would not stop until they obeyed. You'd think this is the moment. This is where everything turns, but surprisingly, if you're familiar with this story, surprisingly or perhaps not so surprisingly, Pharaoh remains unconvinced. Three plagues. Three plagues in. And the third one being a display of power that not even his own magicians could reproduce, and Pharaoh is unmoved. (coughs) Incredible discomfort and pain continue to be brought upon his own household, his own people, The entire nation of Egypt and Pharaoh refuses to listen. He continues to harden his heart just as God said he would. How are we supposed to understand what is going on here? How are we supposed to understand what is still to come? From the mouth of the Lord... We are told that all this is happening so that everyone, the Israelites, the Egyptians, Pharaoh, will know that he is the Lord, that the God of Israel is the one, supreme, sovereign God of all creation. Time and time again, we hear about the gods of the Egyptians. The Egyptians worship the natural world as gods, but these are simply, as we know today, the forces of nature the Lord takes on these so-called gods, this natural phenomenon, and uses them for his own purposes, revealing that he alone is worthy of the title God. But is that it? Is this all, about, is all, is this all just about our God engaging in some kind of cosmic muscle flex? Couldn't God have proven his point with one fl- plague instead of ten? At the end of this first, first cycle of three this morning that we're in, isn't it already, can we all just agree, it's already game, set, and match for the Lord? Need we go on? Is this about ego? What exactly is going on here? To answer this question, I think we need to step back and take the 360 view. To appreciate the significance of what is happening and why it is happening, we need to go back to the beginning. And I mean that literally. We need to go back to Genesis. Genesis. Remember Genesis 1? In the first chapter of Genesis, God creates the world. God creates a world with order and structure. Whatever else God does in the beginning, it is emphasized that God takes a chaotic nothingness and turns it into an ordered structure. The result of God's creative activity is that everything has its right and purposed place. The sky has its place. The sun has its place. All creatures have their place. We humans have our place. Even God has his place. It is in this context that we must view what is going on in Egypt. Pharaoh has taken it upon himself to publicly oppose God's will. Pharaoh is building a kingdom on the backs of his fellow humanity. His construction schedule and profit margins come at the cost of human life. His business philosophy is driven by a hardness of heart that refuses to acknowledge a higher authority. He would rather work his people to death and lose their contributions altogether rather than afford them the freedom to rest and to worship. But Pharaoh's sin has become much more than the enslavement of a people. Pharaoh has become an agent of chaos and disorder. He is engaged in anti-life and anti-blessing policies. Whereas God speaks life into existence out of the nothingness and the chaos, Pharaoh is snuffing out life at the cost of increasing and spreading the chaos in this world. And make no mistake, in case we miss it, in case we think local, all of creation is caught up in this cosmic conflict between God and Pharaoh, God's design for all life, his very purposes for creation are being threatened. His mission toward the whole world is being subverted as a culture of death threatens to overtake a culture of life. And so God must publicly react. This is what the plague narratives are about. Pharaoh has demonstrated that he does not like the way that God has ordered his created world. And so God... Don't miss this. God gives Pharaoh what he wants. Let's be clear about what's happening here. This God that we worship doesn't send lightning bolts. He doesn't open up the ground. Read these narratives again. This is no Zeus that we worship. This God doesn't send lightning bolts or open up the ground. The Lord of all creation, this God, steps back. The provider pulls his hand from the resources that we pride ourselves on, from the structure that we refuse to acknowledge. This God allows the chaos to pour forth so that we can get a taste of a world without God. Pharaoh wants to ignore things, and so God is making a clear statement. The River Nile, the people of Egypt, the land of Egypt, the people of Israel are not the creation of Pharaoh. They are not to do with as he wishes. These things exist and are maintained in the hands of a real God to do with as he wishes. If Pharaoh continues in his course, if he pushes on, if he insists on ignoring God and his will, there will be blood throughout his land. The grief and the pain will not be able to be ignored. Instead of water bringing life as God desires and intends, water will bring death. Instead of being in their proper order as God created them in the first pages of Genesis, diseases and people and animals will run amok. Insects and frogs will swarm out of control. Instead of humans having dominion over the animals, they, animals will have dominion over the humans. Hailstones will come that will be so large as to shatter trees. Specks of dust will become gnats. Instead of light being separated from darkness as it was in the beginning, as God desired and intended, darkness and chaos will remain. Beloved, understand what we are witnessing. The world is returning to its pre-creation state. The forces of nature that the people insist on worshiping are turning against the Egyptians. And this is not ancient history. It may look different. The picture may change. The results may be different. But so it is in our day today. Beloved, so it always is with false gods. In whatever form they take, they will always consume you. We will always become what we worship. If Pharaoh wants to build a world without God's order, that is exactly what he will get but only, you'll notice, in brief glimpses. It's important to see in the midst of all of this awesome display of power, it's important to see the grace of God at work here intertwined with explicit judgment. Even within the plague narratives, we can see that this God does work reluctantly. God repeatedly And we'll continue to see this as we go through the next two cycles of plagues. God repeatedly will tip his hand and show that his real desire is for life and not death. We see this as time and time again he removes the curses that Pharaoh has brought upon his people. Time and time again, God will overcome in Egypt the chaos and bring order back to his creation. For this is his desire. This is his desire. Order, life, not death and chaos. It's his desire for his people. It's his desire for Egypt. It's his desire for the whole world. And beloved, this morning, this is where one of the central messages of the plagues of Egypt comes home with crashing significance for us. For those of us who love the plagues, who love it when God just shows who he is. We better make sure we know what side we're on, yes. But we better make sure we truly know this God in His fullness. In a way that we don't expect. In a manner that, frankly, we're not comfortable with. The story of the 10 plagues reveals God's great love for this world. That's right, God's great love for this world. God's purposes for this world, for our lives, are not destruction. Judgment comes. There are plagues, because God wants life for us, not death. Death is the result of sin and not what God created this world for. God desires, God creates for life. But like Pharaoh, And we've spoken before of the Pharaohs within our own hearts. Like Pharaoh, if we wish to oppose this purpose, if we want to live like Pharaoh under our own order and our own rule, then God will give us what we want. Now, for some of us here this morning, we would say, well, I don't want that. I'm here. I believe in God. But really read carefully as we proceed through the plague narratives because there's a part of this that we miss. We think of this simply as we're not as bad as Pharaoh and most of us are not. Most of us are not. As I said, most of us are not. <laughs> but then again, most of us, all of us are. Because the line of distinction that we want to draw, of, hey, God's in control of my life. Well, most of it. Late-breaking news flash from the plagues. We worship a God who is not okay with just being mostly in control of our lives. If you take nothing away from the ten devastating things that are unleashed, the chaos that comes, with this God, it's all or Nothing. If God is mostly in control of our lives, then God is not in control of our lives at all. And if we would purpose like Pharaoh, even in one square inch of our life to say, this is mine, then God will say, you can have it all. Have it all. If we want to live like Pharaoh, under our own order and our own rule, this God will give us what we want. This God will step back and allow us to live into the full consequences of our choices, the fullness of our illusion of control. And make no mistake, it is an illusion. And beloved, contrary to what the medieval theologians constructed for us, this, God stepping back, God allowing us to live into the full consequences of our own choices. God allowing us to live into the fullness of our illusion of control. This is what the Bible calls hell. The place where God's order and blessing and constraint no longer prevail. We think of hell as some place you'll go to later, just like heaven. But you have but to look in a paper or turn on the news or look deeply in the life of another person who is living in darkness and you quickly realize that there is hell on earth. This is hell. And God, in his love, lets us experience hell by our own choices so that we might get to heaven. Now, I realize that what I'm saying to some of you right now, you're like, what? (laughs) This may sound cruel and capricious. This is not the God that I just sang about. This is not the God that I would worship. Well, yes, it is. You can't get around the book of Exodus. It's one big story. And, And we may think that this sounds like a cruel and capricious God, but I would say if we step back for a second and just check our pulse and breathe a little bit, We would see from our day-to-day lives that while we know this posture, and while this posture that we see God taking in the book of Exodus is hard to swallow, we really recognize, if we let ourselves, that it is, in fact, loving. After all, how many of us? How many of you? How many of us want to have a parent or a friend who gives us whatever we want, whenever we want it? Someone who stands by and allows us to have everything we desire, The kind of person who says nothing and just affirms everything we do, no matter what the consequences, even if we're losing our own souls, you can count on that person to see you as you damn yourself to hell go. (laughs) Isn't the real test of parenting, isn't the real measure of true friendship, the willingness to intervene in our lives, to challenge our choices, to sometimes let us go so that we can fall and then offer us a hand to help us get back up. Isn't it the willingness to go through hell with us in order to bring us back? Beloved, that's the kind of God we see in the plagues. That's the kind of God we see in the 11th plague. Plague that comes later, the worst of them all, where all the lies, the hate, the darkness, the sin of this world nailed Jesus Christ to the cross. We worship the kind of God whose desire for us is life, fullness, and blessing. We worship the kind of God who will go to any lengths to bring that about for us, no matter what it takes. We worship the kind of God who will oppose anyone or anything that would try and take that away from us, even ourselves. Are we listening? Do we know that he is the Lord and there is no other? Or are our hearts hard? Are our backs turned like Pharaoh? We're in the second part of an incredible story. A story grounded in history, but a story that transcends history. A story that is eternal, a story that is cosmic, a story that speaks into every aspect of our lives and our world. And the journey we are on in this second leg is about to become breathtaking. It will inspire and humble us. It will startle and reassure us. It will reaffirm everything we've believed thus far, even as it makes us begin to question everything. And this is all intentional. This is how it's supposed to be. As I said, it's time for a little true or false test And God is about to shatter the box that you and I would put around him. The Lord is determined in these next few weeks as we go through the story to dethrone the rival gods that we would dare worship alongside him, the gods that we do not name out loud, but nonetheless have a strong hold on our hearts. Yahweh. Yahweh is going to break our hearts like Pharaoh's. He's going to bring us down, beloved so that he can lead us up, up out of our fear, out of our slavery into the promised land, into the kingdom. The stage is set. The first cycle has begun. A change is in the air. The God who delivers is on the move. Amen? Amen.